0: All right, so chapter 21. Well, first of all, we're headed to a very simple place tonight. I think I can sum this up for you right now if you want to write this down. Here's where we're headed tonight. God is with me and God will provide. That's what hit me over and over and over again this week. God is with me. And God will provide. Isn't that such a sweet theme? So encouraging just to know, like, whatever you're going through right now, whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever it is you're feeling, God is with you and God will provide. So, thinking about David, as we begin chapter 21, David is afraid. And we, we saw that back in the last chapter, 20, verse 3. He says to Jonathan, truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And when he said that, Jonathan was like, no, 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 no. It, it's, not, it's not that bad. But then they decide to do the whole new moon celebration thing to see if, if that's really true and if his dad really is after David or not. And Yes, it becomes very clear that yes, there is but a step, according to David, between me and death. Because Saul was after him. So David has had his fears confirmed. He already had this fear. And now it's confirmed to him, yes, Saul is after me and I might die. And he is terrified. And the fact that David is scared actually gives me a lot of comfort. Because I'll be honest, I, I've struggled with fear in the last couple of weeks. You know, what's coming down the pipes in this country? What's at the helm? You know, what, what are we going to have to deal with? I can be very outspoken about my faith. What would that mean in the coming years? You know, what, what might we have to deal with? And I've just been afraid, you know, and I've told the Lord, I'm scared And then I get to this chapter and I see that David is afraid. And I was like, oh, good. (laughs) I'm not the only one. This great warrior, the one who had enough faith to go against Goliath with just five stones, he's scared. He's human. Sometimes we can't help the way we feel. But it's what we do then with that feeling that we have control over. Okay? So, sometimes I want to make myself change the way I feel, and I might try. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to feel this way. I'm going to feel some way different. Sometimes you just can't help the way you feel. But you absolutely have control over what you do at that point with that feeling. So, initially, David's fear gets the best of him. He is not truthful with Ahimelech, the priest, and it, later on it costs a lot of lives. Uh, David is not necessarily to blame for that, although we did just talk about how David does, does take some blame for that. He also wrote a psalm when he hears of that, when that happened, and we'll look at that to get a little bit more of what he was thinking about. But just this whole scene with David at the tabernacle, initially, it's only, it's only a few miles probably from where he was at. So he did not go very far, and he's panicking is what it sounds like to me. He's in a rush. What do you have to eat? Do you have anything on hand? Whatever it is, just give it to me. You know, I, I've got to go. I'm on a very special mission for the king, and I can't tell you about it. You know, it just, it's just, and I can relate to that, that real panicky feeling. But we know that God does not want us to be anxious for anything, right? But in everything, by prayer and petition, we're supposed to present our request to God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 So David is not wrong in fleeing to God's sanctuary at all. I don't think he was wrong at all for going to Ahimelech. I think he was wrong for how he was handling his feelings at the time. And we're going to see him come around, kind of like Amanda mentioned. We're going to see him kind of ebb and flow out of this fear and this faith tonight. But he never loses his faith. He always goes back to his faith. And that's what we have to train ourselves to do. As well, but I love the picture that initially David does f- flee. Even though he's panicking, he goes to the tabernacle. I like I like that picture. I mean, that's a great example for us. Like when we're going to flee, where are we going to flee? Where are we going to go? We're going to go to the church. We're going to go to God's people. Are we going to go to God's provision? That's where we need to flee. And initially, that is where David flees. He's just handling those panicking feelings with fear instead of faith. And I do think God answers David. Uh, I, think, I think David is seeking the Lord's help. <laughs> but it's just not quite coming out the right way yet, okay? And I do think the Lord is going to answer him in such a very sweet way and give him some very real assurance. Whether or not David initially recognized it, I'm not sure. Um, eventually he did. But from a human perspective, let's just step back and look at this. And think how quickly life seems to be unraveling for David, okay? So he has gone from shepherd boy to anointed boy to hero to um, very high up in the military, commanding um, many men, we don't know how many, you know, the women singing about him. There's parades going on. He's heralded by all, you know, things look like, wow, Lord, this is great. I mean, this is okay. I can see like in David's mind, can't you see how he would think this is the path to my kingdom? This, this, this is great. <laughs> they all love me. This is going to be easy. The Lord's going to kill off Saul at some point now, and then I'm going to take the throne. And now all of a sudden, things take a huge turn, an unexpected turn, I would think in David's mind, for the worse. And he ends up being chased. He ends up going on the run. He ends up fleeing for his life, scared to death. I don't think he ever saw that one coming. I don't think that was in his mind at all when he was being, um, you know, heralded by all of the people in Israel and having so much success. You know, if I was David and I was having all the success, I would think "The the king will never get rid of me. I'm giving him all this success. We know that's not the case. Saul did not care. He was not thinking rationally, not care what David was doing for his kingdom. He only cared that it appeared that his kingdom was slipping away from him. Okay, now we've already talked about the fact that Dog, we've named him Dog the Edomite, was there at the tabernacle. Coincidentally, the name Dog means fearful. Fearful. So that's kind of interesting. So we have David scared. And also verse 1 of chapter 21 tells us the priest is trembling in David's presence. I don't think he really knows what's going on between David and Saul. I just think David, the war hero, is here. And, why are, and maybe he's panicking. And so you know, the priest is trembling. Then we have Dog the Edomite, whose name means fearful. And the Edomites are traditionally enemies of Israel. So, actually, back in chapter 14, verse 47, uh, Saul is recorded as fighting against the Edomites. So, it's possible, one commentary mentioned, that dog may have been a a prisoner of war that Saul brought back with him. And it's interesting now, for whatever reason, that that dog is detained in front of the priest. It says he's detained there. So, they're... uh, Probably not. Uh, it's probably not dog's desire to follow Israelite law, but he is in Israel, and so for whatever reason, if he's unclean for some reason, something happened. He's at the tabernacle detained, and probably not too happy about it. So now he gets this wind of David. Here he he has been in the royal. I think it said. Did it say what he did? Did is he like the sheep herder? Or something. I mean, he works. He works for Saul. He's obviously back in the court when they're having discussion in the next chapter. He's a herdsman. herdsman, there it is. He's a herdsman. Yes. So now he gets privy to this information, and he's like, "Aha, I see a way to work my way up the ladder and get in, in with the king." <clears throat> so David then <clears throat> sorry guys, can't talk tonight. <clears throat> David then leaves the tabernacle. goes to the city of Gath. And ironically, yes, Gath is where Goliath was from. He doesn't feel safe there. He acts again like a madman. So, well, not again. He acts like a madman. So again, it just seems like life is getting crazier. It just seems like it just keeps unwinding more and more and more and more, right? Now David's acting like a madman. And what's kind of funny is David acts like He's insane in order to hide his sanity, while Saul acts sane in order to hide his insanity. Isn't that kind of funny? You know, that we, that we have these two different ends of the spectrum going on in the story. So he's got spittle running down his beard, you know, and that's, <clears throat> for a Jewish man, that is um, very degrading to have any sort of spit or anything in your beard. So he is really playing the part very well of a madman. His life is totally unraveling, and yet he's the Lord's anointed. And let's not also forget he's the king's son-in-law. Here he is in enemy territory by himself because the king, who is a madman, is chasing him in hopes of murdering him. Wouldn't you just stop and go, okay, Excuse me, Lord, where are you? <laughs> where did you go? What happened to my life? Did I do something wrong? Where, where did the train go off the track? I don't understand, right? I mean, you kind of put yourself in David's mind there. Maybe you can relate a little bit. I'm sure you've probably asked that question before, too. Where are you? What is going on? I don't understand how all of this could get So off track, I know I've asked that question. I've asked that question on more than one occasion. Where are you? So where was God? He was right there. He was right there the whole time. The train was going off the track, and God had not gone anywhere. And in particular, I see four ways in this first chapter as to how God might have been subtly trying to remind David, I'm right here. I have not gone anywhere. I'm right here. The first one is in the name itself, the bread of the presence or the holy bread. It's also called the bread of the presence. So according to the law, this bread was always to be before the Lord in the holy place of the tabernacle on the table. There's one table in the holy place and there was always to be 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel on that table. Now, the bread was stacked in uh, two piles of six and so the bread probably was like, I'm picturing like a nine inch cake pan. It's not, I mean, initially, I was picturing like a loaf of banana bread that's not what it looked like. It was flat and round. And so they would be able to stack these. Because at first I thought, wow, how did they stack those and get them to stay? You know, you get six loaves of banana bread, you just go fall over. So we have to picture more. This bread is more like a cake, all right? And there's twelve loaves to be all the time in the Lord's presence. Every Sabbath, then, new bed bed, new bread is baked, and the old Bread is eaten by the priests, and the new bread replaces the old, and it goes on the table. It's always to be there before the Lord all the time. Now, we know that Christ is also represented by bread in Scripture, right? Uh, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. It just really doesn't get any clearer than that. That's pretty clear. I am the bread of life. So the bread of the presence is really twofold, okay? And it represents Israel before God, always before God. And actually this table had a, in the holy place, it has a, like a nine inch rim going around it. And I'm pretty sure the table also has poles. So when they would move from place to place in the tabernacle, the bread was still supposed to stay on the table. They carried the table with the poles and the bread was not to be moved off the table. They probably covered it. Uh, it was still supposed to be there. So think about that picture too. This bread secure on this table, it's not going anywhere because that rim is going to keep it in place, always before the Lord, okay? And then you have Jesus, the bread of life, who is also always before the Lord, as we know. So what we have is Israel represented in Christ, always before the Lord. Accepted by the Lord, delighted in by the Father. You guys see that picture there of the bread? It's Israel always before the Lord in Christ because he is the bread of life. So when David asks, Do you have any bread? And all that's there, of course, is the bread of the presence. I think it's a beautiful reminder to David from the Lord David, I'm right here. I'm right here. You are before me. My anointed is always before me. Remember, uh, David, my, I think uh, the word for anointed is Messiah. So David at this point is representing the Messiah, and the Lord is saying, Look, my anointed is always before me, always in my presence. I don't go anywhere. I'm still here. All right? And then he got to take the bread with him. How cool is that? And so my presence will go with you. The bread of the presence is now going to go with David. You're not alone. That's number one. How could Abimelech, or Ahimelech give him the bread? I don't know if anyone thought much about that. He was not wrong in doing so. Uh, it was not according to the law. The bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. But the Lord himself, Jesus, in Matthew 12, 1 through 12 actually refers to this story when he's talking to the Pharisees and uses it as a great example. Uh, so his, the disciples were plucking uh, grains, plucking heads of grain as they were walking through a field on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, how can you do that? That's not according to the law. And he's like, hey, have you ever heard? Remember when Ahimelech gave David the bread of the presence? I mean, that wasn't according to law either. And yet that was a good thing. And the reason being, Jesus says... To the Pharisees at that point, he says, Something greater than the temple is here, meaning it points to me anyway. And then he says in verse 7, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So in that instance, it wasn't the letter of the law that was important, it was the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is love. David needed that bread, he needed provision, he needed to know that God was with him, he was God's anointed. And so it was perfectly fine. Ahimelech made the right choice in giving him the bread. Does that make sense? Okay. That's our first reminder that God was with David. The second reminder I see is simply the mention of the ephod. He mentions it. He asks, um, do you have a sword? Do you have a sword? And the text says to us, yes, well, we have Goliath's sword. It's over there behind the ephod. There's one mention of it there. And I think that's just a subtle little reminder. Again, David, you can seek me. That's how they talked to the Lord. It was this thing that the priests wore, and it had a, what do you call it, the Urim and the Thummim in it, and it was a way of asking God questions, asking him yes or no questions. I really want one, because wouldn't that be great if you could just ask the Lord yes or no questions? (laughs) I know! <laughs> should I go to Florida? Yes, I should! <laughs> okay, let's go! <laughs> During, harvest. During harvest, that's right. Right now, let's go to Bible study there. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, that's, how the, that's one way the Lord directed them. We have scripture. We don't have that same, we don't have the ephod anymore. Okay, we do have scripture. They didn't have scripture. I mean, they had the law, but we have something way more amazing with having Jesus' words. Anyway, that's mentioned. I think it's just another subtle reminder that I'm right here, David. I'm right here. You know, the looks of things, from, from David's point of view, a lot of times from our point of view, things look like the opposite of what they really are. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, we lose faith so quickly, don't we? Just by looking at our circumstances. So David's circumstances, if you looked at them, life, his life is unraveling, right? It, it looks like things are really going wrong. I'm not sure they were. God was in control the whole time, right? And God had David exactly where he wanted him. And God's reminding him, I'm right here. I'm still here. The third thing I see is Goliath's sword. Which should have been a great reminder to David that God can give victory against incredible odds. I mean, David's odds don't look good right now. He's alone. He's by himself. He's on the run. Maybe at this point he doesn't know against the entire Israelite army. Who else has Saul turned against him? He has no idea what's going on. He knows he's got one friend, Jonathan. And that's it. The odds don't look good. And I think this is just a little reminder to David. Look, the odds weren't good then either. But you've got me on your side, and that's that's really all you need. I'm right here. I know you can't win, David, but I can win. And that's what the Lord is reminding him here by giving him the sword. And just think, every time David looked at it, every time he used it, every time he picked it up, what a great reminder that would have been. Yeah, my my odds aren't good, but the Lord is the one who won that battle, and the Lord is the one who can win this battle. Now, I do think it's pretty cool that the sword is there in the first place. It means that David must have given it as an offering to the Lord at some point, probably right afterwards in Thanksgiving for the way he protected him. So what I love about that is that it's just such a great example to us never to hesitate to give to the Lord because we can know that what we need will be there when we need it. And it was right there Just think if David had never offered that to the Lord. Maybe it wouldn't have been there. Maybe it would have been back at his house with his wife, and there would have been no way for him to get that sword. But he offered it to the Lord, and it was there then when he needed it, and it would go with him as a great reminder as he flees for his life. Now the fourth one I see might be a little bit of a stretch, but you guys will still love me anyway. I see a reminder just in the words of the Philistines when he gets to Gath. In verse 11, as we mentioned earlier, says, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I see that as a reminder from the Lord to remember. David, remember what I have done through you so far. Remember, I'm right here. I'm the one that's empowering you. I'm the one that's been with you. I've not left you. You're the anointed. You are king of the land. I see that as another gentle reminder of God's presence to David. Okay? And it just made me wonder, as I kind of thought through that a little bit, how many subtle reminders am I missing that God keeps putting in front of me? and telling me, I'm right here. You are panicking, and I am right here. I think the Lord is so good to give us those reminders all the time. And I don't know how good we are at recognizing them, or maybe being still long enough to see them. You know, every once in a while, one does definitely jump out at me. Like this week for me was one of those reminders, just sitting in these passages and thinking about, God reminding David of his presence. God reminding David of his provision. It was just like a light bulb. Like, Stacy, you're panicking. And I'm right here. I will help you figure this out. I will help you get through this. I'm not, I've not left you. I've not abandoned you. And I found a lot of comfort in that. God is present with us. He's not left us. A.W. Tozer has a great quote. He says, while it looks like things are out of control behind the scenes, there is a God who hasn't surrendered his authority. He has not surrendered his authority, and he will not surrender his authority. And yet the reality is that sometimes God's providence or his plan, whatever one you want to call it, for us feels as though it's running counter to his promises. What we're experiencing sometimes feels as though it's running counter to what God has promised us. But it's not so. And David's life is just such a great example of that. I mean, it looked like his life was falling apart. The things were just totally going off the tracks. And yet none of God's promises were failing David. None of them had gone by the wayside. Every single one of them was still true. God was still on the throne. God was still with David. There's a lot of comfort in that. So your first principle tonight. Our circumstances do not dictate God's presence. Our circumstances do not dictate God's presence. So when David... I don't know when he had time to write these things, but... Where's my other Bible? When he gets to... um... Oh, it's behind my paper. When he gets to Gath, apparently, he wrote Psalm 56. Or maybe he wrote after, but the the title, when you look at Psalm 56, says, In God I Trust. So when he gets to Gath, and he's in Philistine... Territory, and he's actually maybe detained by them, and he starts to act like a madman. I, we don't know if this was prior to him acting like a madman, but Psalm 56 goes with this whole scene, and he says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. Verse 3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. We know that verse. But to understand the context behind that verse of him being scared out of his wits in this foreign city by himself, being chased and acting like a madman, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, and listen to this, just think about him saying this in this situation, that God is for me. It's like he's just having to rehearse these truths for himself. I have to do that. That's a really great practice in these different scenarios where we feel like panicking. David is rehearsing truth right here. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Can't you just see him just, I mean, I'm up here smiling saying it, but I see him just, I don't know, hunkered down in some corner somewhere. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? It just put a little different spin on it, right? It goes to the Lord, though. He lays it out before the Lord. He rehearses these truths. And whether or not it's God who gave him the idea to act like a madman, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Or if that was just him, you know, being scared and trying to come up with something to do to try and get out of this situation. But I do think the Lord used it, you know, whether or not, um, the king of Gath actually fell for it or not, or whether he just was, liked David and just wanted to let him go, so it was a nice excuse in, to let him go. We don't know. But he also wrote Psalm 34 with this occasion. In Psalm 34, the title of it says Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it says this is of David when he changed his behavior before so that he drove him out and he went away. So my understanding then is that David wrote Psalm 56 prior to being let go from Gath, prior to getting out of that situation. He wrote Psalm 34 when he got out of that situation. Just listen to the praise in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He sought the Lord in Psalm 56. And God answered him. And now he's praising the Lord again in prayer and song. Verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Look what David is learning. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And here's a verse that we quote a lot. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is the context of when he wrote that verse. In the last verse of that psalm, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You know, we wonder sometimes why we have to go through hard things. But we go through hard things so our faith can make declarations like that. That's why we go through hard things. So we can learn those things. So we can know those things. And praise the Lord on the other side. You know, This is exactly what, what we've been talking about too, Sunday morning. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. David was not going through these hard things because God didn't love him. David was going through these hard things because God did love him. And that's why he was going through these hard things. So here's your second principle for the night. It's a loving act of God to refine our faith. It's a loving act of God to refine our faith. It doesn't feel good. Makes us doubt. Makes us wonder. But it is a loving act of God to refine our faith. Now what do we see happen next in David's story? Well, David leaves the Philistine city of Gath. He goes to the cave of Adullam. And guess what? He's lonely. (laughs) He's in a cave. He writes, probably, commentators agree, Psalm 142 at this point. Listen to these words of Psalm 142 With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Okay, we just read a psalm about him praising God, taste and see that the Lord is good. And here we are now struggling again. This is real life. Now we're struggling again, okay? He's in a cave. I'm assuming he's still alone at this point, And he is crying out to the Lord. Here's the point. David's need to cry out to the Lord for help and deliverance was not a one-time occasion. Well, we, we probably would have thought once we were done with the city of Gath, glad that's over. Now we can get on with it. No. God had him in a position where he had to continue to cry out to him, where he had to continue to rely on him. We just looked at two Psalms, and now here we are looking at some more. <laughs> Again, he's crying out to the Lord. I want to assume that my trials are going to be a one-and-done thing. But they're not going to be. Why? Because the Lord loves us. Because he's going to keep drawing us closer. Because he's going to keep refining our faith. And we have this insatiable appetite to wander away. So he gives us more opportunities to come back. (laughs) More opportunities to cry out to him. David is obviously lonely in this psalm. And what cracks me up is God's answer for him. What's God's answer for him at this point in the story? His family (laughs) and all those other great group of guys that showed up, right? Yeah, the distressed came, the indebted came, the bitter of soul came. And we know David's not had the greatest relationship with his brothers. You know, maybe not even with his parents either. They didn't want to have anything to do with him when he was out herding the sheep. They didn't even think about him beforehand. So there is a history there somewhere. And this is who shows up. Well, thanks, Lord. I appreciate that. But that's not really what I meant. (laughs) I could use some other help right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably what I would have said to the Lord. But God provided exactly what David needed. He he provided who David needed. Actually, some of these men who are with him now will become David's mighty men that are listed in 2 Samuel 23. So let's not discount people because you just never know who the Lord might use. But what I want to show you now really stopped me in my tracks this week. Next, in 1 Samuel 22... David decides to seek protection for his parents in the land of Moab. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Keep in mind that Ruth the Moabite was David's great-grandmother. So there is some history there, and he's going to make sure his parents are safe. I think that's pretty sweet of him. But apparently, once he gets there, David decides to stay outside of the land of Judah because the prophet Gad is going to tell him to get back in the land of Judah. But he stays in what they call in the scriptures here a stronghold Many believe this spot to be Masada on the western shore of the Dead Sea. I don't know if it is or not, but if it is, it, I guess, would have been a great location. It's high up and protected. It would have been a good location for him to be able to see Saul coming from any direction. But the prophet Gad, either he was with him or he shows up, and actually he stays with David Uh, We see him later on pretty late in 2 Samuel. So I think he was with David even through David's rule. This is someone that he entrusted uh, himself to. But he shows up and he says, get back in there. Don't stay here. You need to get back into the land of Judah. In other words, go back into the place where you need God's protection the most. You see that? God's not going to let him stay outside the land of Judah. He's going to make him go back in where he is vulnerable, where Saul might be after him, where he could get attacked. God is going to make him go right back into the fire. doesn't let him stay outside of the land of Judah. And yet being in the fire is what gives David the opportunity to experience God's protection and his provision. Because here's the thing, unless we experience the fire, we won't experience the protection. You've got to experience some of the fire to know God's protection. I want to know God's protection. I don't want to experience the fire. But I won't experience it if I'm not in those situations where I'm pretty desperate and I need him. God was putting David in a position over and over and over again where he would need him where he would need to trust the Lord. It was not a one-time event. (laughs) It was a continuous event. And honestly, we really shouldn't expect anything different in our own lives. We're going to need the Lord. And it's, it's his love for us that keeps calling us back, that he keeps drawing us in and refining our faith and giving us those opportunities. Now, what's interesting, too, is... Okay, after the prophet Gad says that to him, he goes back into the land of Judah. He ends up in the wilderness of Ziph. Guess what Ziph means? It means refining place. Ah, David is literally in the refining place. And let's look what he learns. When I was reading through Psalm 142, I stopped at verse 4, which said, Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. But let's read verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. God was his refuge. David had to go back into the fire, back into the refining place, so that he could learn that God was his refuge, that the Lord was his stronghold. He was in the stronghold, but several places in the Psalms, David writes about the Lord being his stronghold.
1: I'm not sure he would have known
0: that if he just stayed where he was. I'm going to ask that question, because I mentions stronghold a lot of times, and there's a positive and a negative connotation to stronghold in mm. the Scripture. So yeah. I wasn't sure, was David in this stronghold, like, this was not a good thing, or like you had mentioned, mm-hmm. it was a place of maybe, like, protection for himself, mm-hmm. but, I mean, God is to be our ultimate stronghold, because right. we have these things in our lives that are strongholds that have a right. stronger hold on us than he does, Yeah. we think that they do,
1: that right. makes them
0: the negative thing. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a positive and a negative connotation to that word for sure. I think in this situation, it's a a positive. I think the stronghold was truly a nice place to be. I think it was a protected area. But David wouldn't have needed the Lord in that stronghold. So then the place would have become his stronghold. So I guess then we could say that would have been the negative. You know, the place would have been his, yeah, what he was relying on instead of having it be God that he was relying on. But David learned then, through this season of refining, that he had God. That's what he learned. He learned that he had God. We go back to initially when he's panicking, right? And the Lord's trying to show him, I'm with you, I'm with you. He's learning it. He's learning that God is with him. And I just wonder, have we learned that? (laughs) Or maybe we're in a refining place right now where we can learn that. Do we know that God is with us? We'll say it, but do we understand it? Do we believe it? Do we believe that God is really walking with us? You know, does he have us in a place right now where we can learn that, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us? I don't think there's really a better truth to learn than than to know that God is with us, to truly grasp that God is with me, readies me for any situation that is going to come in front of me, right? I mean, if I know God is with me, I, that is a stronghold in and of itself. But I would argue that there's an important counterpart to that. And that's what I mentioned to begin with. God is with us, but the second half of that is God will provide. God will provide for us. I think that's the other half of this. And I do think that's what we see in these passages. We see God with, uh, with David. We also see God provide for David. He experiences God's provision. How so? Well, in chapter 21, we saw that God provided him with the reminders of his presence. He provided him with the bread. He re- uh, provided him with a sword. But then he also provides him with a prophet. He goes on to provide him with a priest. Also an ephod, which would come in very handy, which he uses pretty much right away. And then he also provides him with a visit from his friend. Jonathan comes. That's God's provision too. And he strengthens David. And what's so cool about Jonathan arriving at the point in which he does is it was probably a very key moment for David. In chapter 23, we're going to skip over 22 for just a second. We'll come back to Saul at the end. In chapter 23, David saves the citizens of Kalia from the Philistines, but then learns from God through the ephod that they're going to turn David over. Kalia is an Israelite town. Okay. So at this point, David is probably wondering, how will I ever be king if Israel is against me? I mean, these are his own people now that are going to turn him over to Saul. This would make me very doubtful. This this isn't going to work. These people don't even want me to be their king anymore. Enter Jonathan into the scene. God provided him at just the right time. Jonathan says to him in verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, and you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. So now we know what their plan was. Their plan was to rule together. He would be next to him. Saul, my father, also knows this. Do not fear, Jonathan says to David, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Boy, I bet David needed to hear that at that moment. And God provided it. God provided exactly what he needed at that moment because then David, what happens next? David's in the, in the land of Ziph. What did we call it again? The forest of Ziph. The wilderness and the Ziphites decide to turn on him too. These are Judahites. These are his own people. He's of the tribe of Judah. David is. So these are probably, I mean, I'm saying they're relatives, but like, you know, they're not brothers and sisters. But I would say they're, they're of the same clan is what it sounds like to me. <clears throat> and they're willing so easily to turn him in. So now at this point, he writes Psalm 54. he goes to the Lord and he says, Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers, obviously they weren't that close. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from, my, from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So whether he's being prophetic there or just looking back to what God has done so far in his life, we don't know. But again, he goes to the Lord. Again, he's in a place where he really needs the Lord. Again, it's just not looking good for David, and yet all of God's promises are still true for David. Now, there's some really neat parallels between the life of David and the life of Christ, and I want to point some of these out to you because I think you guys will really like these. Like Jesus, David spent years with no place to lay his head. I had never put that parallel together before. Like Jesus... David came into his kingship through suffering. He had to suffer first. Like Jesus, David was hunted by his own kinsmen. Israel's leaders were after David just as they were after Jesus. Never put, I've just never put all those things together before. Saul is irrational in his theories toward David just as the Pharisees were irrational in their theories toward Christ. Their theories weren't accurate at all. Like Jesus, the coming of David's kingdom begins with a motley crew who grow into strong men due to the godliness and strength of their leader. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like Jesus, David's authority rises even as his circumstances decline, His authority is going to continue to rise because the Lord is going to make it so, even as his circumstances decline. Like Jesus, David was protected by God. And like Jesus, David was in enemy territory. So was the Lord. You guys, God knows what he's doing. That's what I see there. I mean, all those parallels, all these things going on in David's life, David has no idea. He has no idea the pictures that are developing from his life, from his suffering, from what's going on. God is so much bigger than our circumstances, and God is doing so much more than we will ever understand. And I think that's very comforting. We don't need to be afraid, because God is with us, and God will provide he will provide. I've been reading The Hiding Place. Have you guys read The Hiding Place? It's one of my sister-in-law's favorite books, and I've never read it before, so I was like, I need to get and read it. It's Corrie Ten Boom, and it takes place during the Holocaust. And uh, it's really, it is really good. It took me a little while to get into it, but now, now I'm definitely into it. When Corrie was a little girl, and she was first confronted with death for the first time, it terrified her. And she saw a baby, baby, a dead baby in a crib. And she went home, and she was just sure that everyone in her family was going to die. And her daddy comes up to tuck her into bed. And she's like, Daddy, 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 you can't die. You can't die. You can't die. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to die. And I just love what her dad says to her. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, and they would ride the train to Amsterdam, she would go with him. When do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train? Exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die and you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Loved that. I loved the whole picture that God give you the ticket you need when it's the right time. We, we're girls. I don't know if it's just a girl thing or not, but I get ahead of myself all the time. And I'm like, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? How is this going to work out? I don't know what's going to happen. And it's just a great reminder. Like, no, God will give you the ticket. When it's time, he'll provide the ticket that you need to get on the train that you're supposed to get on. I just thought that was a great picture. Ah. <sighs> Are you guys encouraged? I hope you're encouraged. God is with us. God will provide. We do have to talk about Saul, though. We haven't finished talking about his, his craziness yet tonight. He's totally deranged. He's totally deranged. Okay, He's decided there's this big conspiracy against him when, in fact, he's the one who started it. He's the one chasing David. David's not chasing him. Whether or not he actually believes that or he's just using that to get everyone else on his side, we don't know. But he is totally deranged. Saul knows God is with David, though. I think that was made clear a couple chapters back. So perhaps in an effort to derive David of any more divine assistance, I mean, think about that, he assassinates God's priests. Maybe maybe that was one, re- maybe that was one part of his thinking. Except we know then that one priest escaped and that priest had an ephod. So it wasn't going to stop anything that God was doing because nothing can stop God. There's comfort in that too, especially the schemes of man. There's a lot of scheming going on in our nation right now. It's not going to stop God. None of it. No matter how twisted it is, it cannot stop God. He is still the one on the throne. And I'm so thankful for that. We can all just take a big sigh of relief. Psalm 21.11 says, of, David says this of God's enemies. Psalm 21.11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. They won't. They won't succeed. And it might look like the train is way off the tracks, and it might look like everything is out of control, and then we can go, wait a minute, David. Okay, it looked like that for David too, God was still with David, and God will provide. God was still with David, and God will provide. So really, this whole episode for Saul is just the final nail in the coffin of him truly becoming a king like all the other nations. So he even uses a Gentile to kill God's own people. That's how much he is like all the other nations. He uses an Edomite. And basically what he does is declares holy war on God's own people, on God's priests. Dob doesn't just kill those 85 priests. He kills everyone in the whole town. And the only other time that we've seen that uh, described here for us in First Samuel was back in chapter 15 when God told Saul to go and do that same thing to the Amalekites. It was holy war. It was for the purpose of protecting Israel from following after those nations in sin. It, God had a specific purpose behind it. And now Saul has turned and done that to his own people. And remember Saul failed when God told him to do it to the Amalekites. He doesn't fail now. He doesn't fail now. He totally annihilates everything and everyone in the city of Nob. So when David hears hears of this horrific crime against God, he writes Psalm 52. I love this guy because I process things through writing also. I totally get that. So every time something happens and he writes, I'm like, yeah, that makes me feel better too. I totally understand that. In Psalm 52, he says... Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking. What is right? You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his own destruction. He's describing Saul in that verse. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. What did David learn through his refining time? To make God his refuge. What has Saul not done? He has not made God his refuge. But then verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David was the green olive tree, right? He was the green olive tree. And he was the one flourishing, the guy in the refining place, and yet, looking on it from the human perspective, it did not look like that, did it? Didn't look like that. And I just think that's a great reminder to us. Again, things aren't always as they seem. We've talked about that. I want to be that green olive tree in the house of the God, of God, the one that's flourishing, the one that makes God their refuge, because they know that God is here, that God is with me, God is providing for me, and so he's my refuge. I don't want to miss that opportunity. I don't want to miss his subtle reminders to me that he is with me. It looks as though, a lot of times it looks as though, um, over time, the deceitful are flourishing, but they're not. They're not. It's the one who finds their refuge in God. They're the ones that are truly flourishing. So your last principle for the night is a simple one. God's provision is sufficient for all. God's provision is sufficient for all. He's going to take care of things one way or the other, just like David was just talking about in this last psalm. He's going to provide what the godly need, and he will also provide what the ungodly deserve. We don't need to panic. We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We certainly don't need to give up. We just need to pray. We need to keep going to the Lord. We need to keep crying out, looking for his provision. And we need to remember that God is with us, and he will provide Right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. What is an ephod again? Because I know it's like a garment, but I'm just confused on the exactly I think it's about. like a vest. Okay. And then there was pockets for the Urim and the Thummim that the priest wore. So if the, maybe the, I think the vest is the ephod, and they carried those pieces in the ephod, okay. I think. Okay. I'll double-check on that. Okay. But the, they had a lot of garments. No. Do you have a picture of it? Oh, good. Am I right? Is it a, like a vest type thing? It looks kind of like a, I guess in a that goes in a dress Yeah. Dress that well, they did. An arm. they did wear also, I think that was, was that separate? <laughs> I think they did wear a breastplate too. Oh, it's separate. Okay. Maybe we need to study the garments of the priests. I'll pray, and I'll let you guys go, and then we can keep talking if you want. So, Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for refining us, for caring enough to chase after us like that. Thank you for your word, Lord, and uh, just for the reminder that you are with us and that you will provide. It's such a sweet reminder, and I just pray that we carry that with us as we leave here tonight. Uh, believing that you are for us, you are with us, and we have the Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sorry, I went over, guys.